and welcome to the IMI Talking Leadership Podcast. I'm joined with Bruce Young, Senior Workplace Consultant at Gallup, who will be conducting a talent forum later on about onboarding and engagement. So first of all, welcome, Bruce. Thank you, Hugh. Pleasure um, to be here. So let's start at the beginning. Uh, what is onboarding and how has it changed as a concept over the last, last number of years, decades? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's really, um, when you think about a new hire, and that doesn't have to necessarily be a brand new hire. It might be somebody into a different role inside the organization. But it's finding ways to integrate them into the culture. Um, and it, it even it, it, it takes you a step back to the actual recruiting process. Um, and that's why the recruiting process is so important. Because if you're going to get your onboarding right, you've had to have had a really good solid um, recruiting process. Mm. So during the recruiting, uh, these people that are joining, they've got high expectations. They've been attracted to a certain brand. They arrive and from day one, they're then looking at from the recruitment to the onboarding process, how does this align? So they're looking for that alignment from day one. So the longer you leave it to not have an onboarding process, often if we find organizations that don't have it, it starts to fall off the edge of a cliff. And, and how it's changed in the last decade or so, I'd say companies are, are getting far more intentional about doing it because they've realized that if they don't do it, they've almost wasted all their recruitment efforts. So it's like half of the equation, do the recruitment, but then follow through and complete the puzzle by doing the onboarding as well. And, and I would have, I, this is the wrong assumption, but I would have always thought it was quite a junior process. It's when a new graduate straight out of college come in, you give them a, a brief on the, 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 the overall mission of the company. I'm obviously totally wrong there, but do companies also have that same wrong impression do you see in, in, in the marketplace in general? Yeah, but the ones that get their recruitment processes right, even if they get that right, they understand that there's an integration into the culture because the person joining, hopefully they've been hired with things like alignment with culture, purpose, and brand. Okay, so, and this is something I'm gonna talk about during the session. You know. Is their purpose aligned to the company's purpose? Is their brand, what do they stand for? Does it align with what the company stands for? And then the culture, does it feel like the kind of place that I really want to be part of? So you would hope that a lot of that is covered during the recruitment process. But then to make it real, we've got to then find ways to integrate them into that culture. And the one thing that we've found in many organizations we're working with very early on, they take the chance to find out what the natural talent is of each of those leaders, and then find ways to aim that talent at their day job. Because many companies, people join, they look at what you're good at, then they say, right, put that one side, we'll take that for granted, mm. and then more importantly, let's focus on what this person doesn't have, and let's try and fill the gap. Yeah. Um, so a huge shift, I would say, in the last five, 10 years is around this approach to focus on what people are good at. Like, what are your strengths? And very early on, from day one, week one, help them identify that and help them aim it at their day job. So it's sort of fitting the role to the person rather than the person to the role. Correct. Yeah. And, uh, and this, I mean, the evidence, you talk about numbers, it really hits performance, speeds up onboarding. If you, if you think about it, when you're at your best, that's when you've got ease, excellence, enjoyment. The more of that you can have, the better. So the earlier we can start with developing people around what they're good at, this, it's, it's a simple concept, but not many companies are doing it. And, and how long does it take a sort of new employee, especially at the leadership level, which we're talking about today, to get up to speed at a company 
sort of with or without an onboarding process? Okay, so it does vary depending on a few things. So you've got the complexity of the role, that's one thing. Could be complexity of, uh, is it matrixed? So there's many factors that might affect the speed at which it takes. But I will go back to the fact that if you want to speed it up, you focus on what that leader is good at rather than ignore it. Because as soon as we ignore it and start trying to fill, ah, this guy's not that great in front of this kind of audience and we focus on that, mm. that's 1% of his, you know, what about the other 80, 90% that he's brilliant at? So even like I'm working with senior executives, uh, working with a car manufacturer in Sweden, CEO is 66, and he's like recently been put in that role. So, you know, 66, does he need onboarding? And I spend time with him around what he's good at. And he's like, oh my gosh, like, why didn't I know this earlier? And how am I going to use this now for the next four years before I retire to leave some kind of legacy? So that's kind of lit him up with some inner power that he didn't know that he had. Um, so, yeah, tapping into the innate talent is something that seems to speed it up. But to ignore it is dangerous. Um, for leaders, it can be difficult uh, moving from cultures. I'm particularly thinking of that sort of, you know, from the startup to that multinational bureaucratic company. Does the typical onboarding process take in, into account of this shift? And should it do so? And how should it do so? Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, I'll take it a step back again. Yeah. Because if a guy's moving from an entrepreneurial setup to a, let's say, more bureaucratic, Ideally, that's been figured out during the recruitment process. Like, is this person got the talent to operate in a completely different environment? So what, it, what can he do or what can she do or not do inside this new culture? Because, yeah, if we just try and move someone from that culture to that culture without taking them through a really rigorous recruitment process, that's going to be pretty, pretty dangerous. So I would say... Um, yeah, the recruitment, and then once they're in, let's figure out what they're good at, but also what are some of the things that they just shouldn't be doing? And either we need to uh, not make that part of their role, or they need some kind of coach to help them transition into this new kind of uh, you know, bureaucratic setup. But yeah, if they, if they, we don't want to end up being in a wrong fit, but the in onboarding is definitely going to help with that. So you, by using coaching, you can fill those sort of cultural... You can to an extent, but that's why the, if the recruitment process hasn't highlighted that this person... Will need the... Yeah, because you, you don't really want to hire someone that's going to need 25% of their development or something, you know. So the recruitment process definitely is the, the, the primary filter that then makes sure we've got the right talent that goes through the right onboarding. If we've got the wrong talent, then the onboarding is going to take a lot longer. We might end up with the wrong job fit. But we can coach them. So we would recommend that that person, either through coaching or mentoring, can fill some of those gaps by focusing on what they're good at. And then those elements that just aren't what they're good at, you either find people around them that can do that part of the job or, yeah, complementary partnerships. One of the startling things that Gallup found, 15-year-long um, studies in the workplace, was the level of engagement. In Ireland, I think a lot of employers will be shocked at this, only 13% of employees are engaged with their work. Has this level been consistent? Is it getting better or worse? And I suppose, how do you define engagement? Right. So worldwide, 
the figure has been quite consistent over the last 15 years. So with the advent of technology and lots of companies putting a lot of effort into engagement, these percentages have stayed quite static. That figure in Ireland uh, three, four years ago was actually 3% better. Mm. So from 16 down to 13. But to make us feel better, in the UK, it's 11. <laughs> in places like France and Spain, it's 6%. Yeah. So it's... Uh, and just let's also bear in mind, this is like a, it's a big number for a whole country. I mean, what can you do with that? You can't do too much with that information. So what do we do? The key message for us is what is the engagement level at a team level? And what can you do inside your team? And what's, who's responsible for that engagement? It's usually one person and it's the manager. So we find that the variance on engagement, 70% of it is down to the manager which is in some ways a good news story, but for many managers, that's a bit of a scary stat. Um, but yeah, on those country statistics, uh, even in America, it's like 32%. Mm. But bear in mind, there's still like, what's that, 68% to go. So it might look amazing, but, uh, and it's a far whole country. And they've probably been spending maybe a bit more time focusing in on some of these engagement elements, which was part of your other question, is like, how do you measure it? Mm. Uh, we found that there's 12 elements that really drive engagement and performance. And we use these 12 items to measure engagement. And through these statistics that we're talking around the world in different countries, we're asking people through the Gallup poll, what is it like in the workplace from an engagement perspective? So they get to answer these 12 items and then we can measure these, these percentages. Can you go into it a little bit more? Is it like, are the questions are like, do you trust your manager or? Yeah, so that, that's a good one. I mean, so the trust one is, that's like the need behind the question. We want to build trust. The question, which is famous around the world in the Gallup world and with our clients is, I have a best friend at work, okay? It's number eight of 12. Uh, I have a best friend at work and at the heart of that is, I'm there for you, I've got your back. Yeah, it's all about building trust. So each of these questions has an emotional need behind them. Like number one is called, I know what's expected of me at work. That's a foundational basic need, right? The need behind that is, I need somebody to focus me. That's what I'm coming in with. I need somebody to help focus me. Number two is, I have the materials and equipment to do my job right. So what's the need behind that? That's uh, free me from unnecessary stress. So these are the basic needs, uh, which leads to what we call an engagement hierarchy. So the first two are the basic needs. Then we've got items three through to six are what we call um, individual needs. Then number seven to 10 are the teamwork needs. And then at the top two, we have growth needs. So there are like four levels to this hierarchy. The key point being, let's focus at the base to start with. I was about to ask, so if you take out one of those keys at the base, the sort of hierarchy collapses down itself. Correct. And the interesting point around this session today is around purpose-led onboarding. And the purpose question happens to only come in at number eight. So as much as purpose is important, there's seven other things before it that also need to be in place before we get too crazy about purpose. Um, so some of those basic things, many organizations, they just don't have them in place. And that's why a lot of these percentages are quite low because not many companies are aware of what these 12 items are. And then once we start working with them, like the average in Western Europe is at 10%. The average of Gallup clients in Western Europe sits at 44%. Mm -hmm. 
So the guys that invest time and do something with those questions, we start to see an uplift. That's the next question. So those 44%, those companies they work with, they got up to that level. How do those engagement levels actually affect performance, bottom line, everything right across the, the organizational structure? Okay, so the, we do this meta-analysis every 18 months. It's putting all our data into the pot. And the point is to make sure the viability of linking engagement to performance. And consistently, we see these kind of percentages where we compare the top engaged teams, the top 25% to the bottom 25%. We see impacts on things like productivity of 17%. For the top versus the bottom. When it comes to profitability, 21%. Uh, if you've got things like quality, if that's important in your business, 40% lower quality defects. When it comes to safety incidents, 70% less safety incidents. Wow. So, I mean, that's... And, and then the last one is absenteeism. 41% lower absenteeism. So people, when they engage, they're running to work, they're not running home at the end of the day. They, they're just hanging out, waiting for Monday. I mean, I'm not saying it's bad to have a weekend, <laughs> but you know, they wake up and they think, man, this is a good thing. I'm going, I'm off to work today, you know, so. There's a smile on their face when they get up in the morning. Big time. And not that pit stomach feeling as they yeah, go yeah. to bed the next well, like day. Like Sunday night, starting to get that, like, <laughs> do I really have to? So they're living for the week, they live for the weekend with similar kind of passion rather than just living for the weekend. It's incredible, just as you're, you read out those statistics, it's almost like a CEO is getting an extra day's work. No, that's a it. It's a good way to equate it. Because even when we say those percentages, um, that's a great way to say it. You get an extra day out of your people per week. And I mean, who wouldn't want that? It's, it's good time invested. And as the managers learn how to, to develop, to drive engagement in the workplace during onboarding and beyond, it just becomes a natural way of how they do it. Yeah. Many of them need to be equipped. They're not necessarily naturally good at doing it, but we've managed to develop thousands of managers to be able to do a much better job at it. But yeah, if you give them the right tools and techniques, most of them have the, the ability and the talent to implement a lot of it. So we've been looking at this issue through the lens of the organization, sort of the bottom line value for them. Let's take it from an employee's uh, point of view. How have the rewards employees are looking at changed over the years? Are we all still just looking for the big paycheck or have we moved beyond that at this point? Yeah, so it seems to have moved. The shift we've seen, so our latest studies over the last five years has shown a shift from my, my paycheck to my purpose. At the same time, we find that only four in 10 people around the world say that the mission and purpose of their company makes their job feel important. So there's a lot of work for us to be doing around the world to, to get moving on this whole thing on purpose, especially with millennials. Millennials these days are less interested in the paycheck. They're particularly interested in the purpose. They're less loyal as well. They're not committed to any particular brand, for example. If they're not being able to live out their purpose, which is kind of their life, it used to be my, my job, now it's my life, was my paycheck, you know, now it's my purpose. So it's about purpose, it's about my life. And if I'm not getting that fulfillment here, man, I'm not gonna hang around very long. I'll go and find somewhere else. So um, yeah, that's, that's been quite a shift. So employees are looking for their mission to be aligned rather than being subsumed into a, a mission of an organization that they join. Yeah, correct. And they're probably very, uh, in, the, in the recruitment process, they're very, um, they come equipped with those questions that make sure that those purpose questions are answered. 
Whereas in the past, it you'd be used to be the recruiter trying to impose the purpose. Now it's the other way around, saying, hey, <laughs> tell me a bit more about your purpose. Uh, this is what I'm here for. Do you guys do that? Yeah, so getting clear on the, I'll go back to the purpose, brand, and culture before recruiting and onboarding is critical. Seems to fit in with the whole get them to do what they're good at. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, a lot of what we cover here does come back to that. I mean, it's not a one-trick pony, but it's such a, um, it's your raw material that's just sitting, sitting there waiting to be used. So one of the interesting connections Gallup uh, makes is between an engaged employee and a happy customer. Can you explain that a little bit further? Sure. So we, we did a study that says, what are the best companies doing that the rest aren't? And we started by asking the question, what are you striving for the most? And the thing that most of these publicly listed companies are striving for, rightly or wrongly, is stock price increase. Then we said, what's the thing that affects that the most? Then we found it's net profit affects your stock increase. What affects profit? Sustainable growth. That's all about sales. So these are big business outcomes. Then we said, what's the one thing that affects sales or sustainable growth? Customer engagement. Okay. Then it was, what's the single most important thing that affects customer engagements, actually? Employee engagement. Okay, so it's the single most important thing. And when we did that meta-analysis, top versus bottom, 10% uplift in customer engagement. When we compare those employees that are at the top versus the bottom, 10% better on customer. It's amazing, because you'd think there would be a very hard disconnect between employees and customers. You know, there's the shop front in between. But there obviously is a very strong connection between the two. Big time. And the companies that focus on both at the same time, we get what's called um, this human sigma impact. It's like an exponential impact. If you only focused on employee engagement, you might get 100% return. If you only focus on customer engagement, you get 100% return. If you focus on both of these things at the same time, you get, what, 240% return. There's an exponential impact. I mean, it's, it's profoundly obvious, but... Is it literally just because people, are leaders, I suppose, just don't take the time to think about these things and, and they're just too caught up in their day-to-day -day activities? Yeah. And not many of them have got to see the impact that this kind of stuff can have. So as soon as we start sharing that, bringing that to the attention, it usually starts to grab the attention. Whereas before, it might not have been positioned in some kind of business uh, context. impact, context, because it's like people and people will just do what they need to do. Mm. Uh, so I think there's a much higher appreciation of human capital and the need to invest in these 12 needs that we've found that most human beings need. And we found that these 12 things, culturally around the world, they pretty much apply in every single culture. There's only one culture in the world where one of the items had to play, be changed slightly because it just didn't quite fit. But for the most part, these things, they tested in all countries. We've got people coming here today from Saudi Arabia. The same items are used there. I was there recently as we would use here on Ireland. They're culturally sensitive. Whereas often places I go to, people say, but hey, you know what, we, we, we're very different here. And this company, we're very different. And I'm like, okay. But over time, we get to realize that people have pretty much these emotional needs as human beings. And if we can get those sorted, we see the uplift in engagement, performance follows. The hierarchy of engagement sounds very much like the Maslow hierarchy of needs, yeah, just the, it is. the basics. It's very similar. 
So how does engagement play into the overall organizational identity mm. and how does an individual employee both identify with and mm. benefit from it? With the org identity, we've got those three elements of purpose, brand, and culture. The engagement piece probably fits under the culture part, but the culture piece is a lot bigger. You know, it's got, within there, you've got a number of levers for culture. You've got leadership, you've got values, values and rituals, this kind of thing. You've got team structures. You've got a number of things that are um, the levers for culture. And then within that, the engagement is one piece of that puzzle. So you, it's not to say that engagement is the answer to your culture challenges, because you might also have some systemic barriers that are in there that need to be ripped out. The performance management system might just be a killer. You know, it's like people are like completely destroyed with it. Mm. And we suddenly come in with a whole engagement approach, which is counter to the performance management approach. It's not going to work. Mm. So I'd say it fits into the culture. But if you think about the culture, the culture goes back to why do we exist with purpose? What do we stand for as our brand? So if we've got those two clear, then I think we're ready to really work on our culture. One piece of which is the engagement. How does the person benefit? I mean, a lot of the focus is on team engagement, but we also encourage people to look at those 12 items for themselves individually. It's like the first one, I know what's expected of me at work. If I don't know what's no, you know, expected of me at work, do I just sit there and wait for my manager to come tell me or do I proactively go and figure out what's expected? So over time, we start seeing people becoming like awakening and becoming a far more assertive and interested in the business. Like if I don't know what's going on, I go and find out. And I, it's almost like I've been given permission mm. because it's a known fact that these 12 things exist and it's cool that we talk about it. Whereas in some organizations, it's like you're not too sure what you should talk about. So this is a very helpful um, reference point. If everyone, it starts, we start talking a, um, a very consistent language around engagement. And we know that these at the bottom are, are foundational. And if I don't have materials and equipment, we're going to do something about it. It's interesting you say just as they talk about it, because trite phrases, the first thing about it, it, addressing a problem is acknowledging it. So do you see when you go into those companies, do you see an immediate upshift when you even just start talking about the subject of engagement? Yeah. Yeah. So, and we often find that, especially in year one, many of the companies are, they start in the bottom quartile of our database, which for many of them is quite shocking. The main thing, I, I don't find it shocking because not many of them have discussed these 12 things before. So it would be unusual for it to be very high. They might have um, had some other engagement done that said that they were very engaged. But through these 12, it seems to come out a bit differently. That usually, if they accept that, when they see the results, then they want to talk about it. And then they want to do something about it. So corporately, they might decide, hey, we need to focus on this and that. But we actually encourage the action to be taken at the local level. This is not a, a measurement process that is just kept at head office level and the head office guys decide, right, we need to do these five things and that's going to sort our engagement culture out. We then, it's empowered down to each manager and their team to take action on their own engagement. Um, and I think that's quite, it's quite liberating. It's not waiting for the guys at the top and they say, when are those guys going to do something? Well, yeah, those guys do need to do something, but what are we going to do? What can we do to make this a better workplace? And that, that is very liberating and energizing and 
so yeah, I've worked in some of these that have gone from bottom to top in the space of four years. Actually, right. an insurance company in the UK. And yeah, it's just a complete pleasure to to work with, to watch. And when I went in there, it didn't feel like it was completely disengaged. Mm. It was just, they weren't aware of these these needs. And now they've worked on them, they've shot up, but more importantly, the business has gone up as well. So I'm sure you'll be going into this in more detail during the session, but for the senior leader listening to this right now, mm. and they realize they could see some of those, those, those uh, problems in their own organization, how do they improve their onboarding uh, of new hires and their engagement of all employees? What's the first steps they should take? Mm -hmm. And how would they begin to measure it? Is it literally by calling you? <laughs> <laughs> no, there's, there's many ways to measure it, so I, I think measurement's important. I'll, I'll take a different angle on this one. It's, it's actually making sure we recruit the right managers with the right talent to manage these new people that are coming on board. Um, because we find that only in, through our recruitment database, there's only one in 10 people that have the natural talent to be good managers. And then there's another two in 10 people that have some talent to become a good manager. So imagine that, that leaves us open to quite a high risk of not necessarily mm. having managers that can look after these new, uh, I call them assets coming into the company. So I think making sure we hire the right managers is a key point, who then oversee and support those people coming in on the onboarding process. So that, that's one part of it. I'd also, from a measurement point of view, measure their strengths and use that as a very early development opportunity to help them align from what was expected to what actually happens in the day job. I can now pull on my natural talent to deliver inside this new job. And are these psychometric tests, are these sort yeah. of the, the soft skills, we, we call them, I suppose? Yeah, soft skills with hard outcomes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so as we're, as we're wrapping up, you mentioned insurance company over there in the UK. Can you give mm. us best practice examples for both the onboarding and the employee engagement? Sure. Um, so we've worked with Mars. So Mars, chocolate, pet food, you know, this is a large organization around the world. They called us in, this is actually about 13 years ago, but I'm, I'm sharing it because they started out and they were sitting quite low down on the engage front. They're sitting at like 18% of the employees were engaged. Okay, so quite similar to those other stats we mm. talked about earlier. They brought in a CEO who said, right, we need to completely change this. We need to, in the space of three to four years, we want to get up to the 80th percentile in the Gallup database. So they set this very bold vision. Um, they also made engagement their key HR priority. So this became something that was, it was a have to across the whole of the company. They even got these champions on board that would drive engagement, but also make sure that the onboarding, the new hires were introduced to this concept right at the start. So that honeymoon period of new starters that sometimes isn't a honeymoon period for too long became a much longer honeymoon period. So they get introduced to these engagement uh, items. They know it's important. And from a very early stage, they've got no chance of the engagement dipping. Mm. Okay, so that, that's key. Um, the guys at the top, the leadership team became the role models. The engagement levels were quite low in the 20th percentile. They managed to shoot it up to like 70, 80th percentile yeah. over a three, four, five year period. But they also did some other things. They made the managers accountable for the engagement scores, their performance scores. 
chronic underperformers, they got rid of them. So they made some hard business decisions to really, you know, make sure that this, this all worked. Now, we, we, we move the clock forward. These guys are now sitting with engagement levels 70%. So it was 18 and it's jumped up to 70. Active disengagement, so these are the guys who prefer to pay them to stay at home. That's dropped from 23 to 5%. So even through all this amazing effort, you're still going to have a small percentage of these actively disengaged. But I mean, the point is it's moved from 18 to 70. What difference does it make to the overall business? They doubled their, their, their revenue, tripled their profit. So from a business perspective, that's the kind of impact we're talking. And they've sustained it. So they hit this thing, uh, what's it now? It's nearly 10 years ago. And 10 years later, they're still sitting at the top of our database. They didn't just hit the target and then mm. they've actually sustained it. It's become part of the fabric of their culture. Even just to describe it, it does sound like a life cycle, the onboarding, hiring, even firing, the engagement within the company. It's, a, it's an entire process right through. So even, right. even with high turnover rates, you'll still always have that high engagement. Correct. If you give them the right tools and techniques, most of them have the, the ability and the talent to implement a lot of it. Super. Bruce, I look forward to the talent forum later on. Very Thank good. you very much. Thank you, Hugh.